Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Are we ready in the back? Okay. Hey, well, I want to welcome you all to its time. Welcome everyone watching by YouTube as well in our, our virtual uh, live service, live stream service. We're in, we've been in a series on the fruits of the spirit. Uh, today's part seven. Uh, so far we've covered, uh, love, joy, peace, and patience. Today I want to talk about the next uh, fruit of the spirit, uh, kindness. Uh, to get at this theme, I want us to look together at Ephesians 4, verse 29 through verse, uh, Ephesians 5, verse 2. We have it on the overhead as well. So, uh, beginning with uh, Ephesians 4, 29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Messiah, God forgave you. Be, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Messiah loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. As I've stated, the theme of this whole series, kind of the meta theme, is that the fruits of the Spirit are marks of a supernaturally changed heart, not just a morally restrained heart. That's why, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul says, uh, if I get, uh, we'll put this in the overhead, First Corinthians 3, if I give away all my goods to the poor, uh, if I die for my faith, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. So here's our principle in action. Paul says it's possible to do all these morally virtuous things, all this great behavior, without any love at your core. It's possible to be incredibly virtuous in your outward behavior, and, and that, and that flow of it, and yet had flow from an outward inner emptiness rather than, rather than an inner fullness of love and joy and peace. In other words, it's possible to do all these morally virtuous behaviors and yet have it done through a heart that's merely restrained by force, not changed at the root. Yeshua, of course, says the same thing. Look at Matthew 5.20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Torah teachers, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, all other religions in the face of this earth give you lists of virtuous behaviors uh, to follow. Uh, but the New Covenant Scriptures give us something very different. Now, the New Testament does give us lists, uh, so on the surface, uh, it might look the same. But it's actually giving us are the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and the attributes of love, 1 Corinthians 13. It's giving us the marks of a supernaturally changed heart. So these are very practical tests uh, of self-examination, whereby you can see how you are doing in your walk with the Lord by comparing your life against these nine fruits of the Spirit. Now, our theme today is kindness. 
Uh, and kindness is on all of these lists. It's in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. It's in 1 Corinthians 13, the, what love is. Look at, for example, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says love is kind. So, so let's look at kindness today. I want to look under three headings on the overhead. Three headings. What kindness is not, uh, what, what kindness is, and number three, how we can get it. So what it's not, what it is, and how, how we can, we can achieve it, we can get it. So number one, what kindness is not? Uh, first Corinthians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4 verse 32. Again, Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Messiah, God forgave you. Now last week we looked at patience and the theme of, part two of patience, the theme of overcoming anger, uh, with an emphasis on forgiveness. Now if we're honest, most people find forgiveness hard. Uh, when asked how often one must forgive, Yeshua says, Matthew eighteen twenty two. Yeshua answered them, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. And since seven is the perfect number, this is a Hebraic way of saying, you must forgive endlessly. You must continually forgive. And when the average secular person, person hears that, they say, that's not possible. <laughs> that's hard. Uh, uh, but when you get to today's character trait, uh, kindness, most people say, that doesn't really seem that hard. Uh, according to, to research studies, most people admit they have trouble with forgiveness. But virtually no one thinks they have trouble uh, with kindness. Almost no one says, yeah, I'm unkind. <laughs> I'm just an unkind person. Uh, almost no one says that. Plenty of people realize, plenty of people admit that they have trouble with forgiveness. But almost no one realizes or admits that they have trouble with kindness and compassion. So kindness and compassion on the surface looks easy. Whereas forgiveness looks hard. And so if this is true, why would kindness be on all these lists as one of the nine key fruits of the Spirit? What's so hard about it? A lot of people are kind, right? Oh, really? Let's look uh, a bit deeper, okay? Uh, recently, there was an interview with this famous actor, uh, Ian McKellen, uh, in the New York Times magazine. Ian McKellen, of course, is famous for many of his roles. Probably his three most famous roles is he played the king in Shakespeare's Richard III. He played Magneto in, in the X-Men. Uh, and most of all, he plays Gandalf in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And the subject came off of playing really nice, kind people in various films and plays. And here's an excerpt from the interview on the overhead. Ian McCallan says, good characters are very, very difficult to play. Really? More difficult than evil ones? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I mean, do you know any really good people? <laughs> well, maybe one or two. And don't you just wonder at them? <laughs> don't you look at them and say, Good God, what's their motive for being like that? <laughs> Don't you just wonder at them? I mean, it's so difficulty, difficult. How does an actor figure out someone like that? Well, sometimes, I must admit, I find goodness a little boring in people, actually. <laughs> well, you see, there it is. It's really good people who are the inhuman ones, not the really wicked people. Wow. Now, Ian McKellen, he's getting at what actually, believe it or not, what Paul is getting at in, in 1 Corinthians 13. This New York Times Magazine interview is getting at the fact that there actually is a type of kindness, a type of goodness, uh, a niceness, a kindness, 
which seems artificial and false and forced and unreal. Now, why would that be? And the answer, according to 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll put this on the overhead, please, is because it's possible for kindness to be not the result of a supernaturally changed heart, but merely the result of a morally restrained heart. So what is kindness? Uh, on one level, kindness is the opposite of selfishness. If you're selfish, you're not kind. Uh, that's why, for example, if you ignore persons and, and someone ignore their needs, the request for help, or someone wants to talk to you and you ignore them, uh, you're self-centered. That's a form of, of unkindness. But there's also, also a type of, not just unkindness, but there's a type of kindness in which the natural selfishness of your heart is not dealt with. It's not changed. Rather, it's just hidden uh, and expressed through external actions that outwardly may appear kind and generous, but are really ways of getting power over people or, or ways of getting esteem for yourself. In other words, there's a type of kindness that ultimately really is all about you. Famous philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, he was really into this whole issue. He was really onto this phenomenon of people being outwardly kind or moral or religious for ulterior motives, whether conscious or not, and typically unconscious. In his landmark work, Thus Spake Zarathustra, uh, you're immediately struck and you're actually offended uh, by, by how much he despises the traits of kindness uh, and neighbor love. Uh, and he despises Christianity for having produced those traits. He calls biblical Judeo-Christian ethics, he calls them the morality for the weak, uh, the herd morality, uh, a trick for the weak to keep down uh, the natural domineering instincts uh, of the strong. Uh, and therefore, he sees morality ultimately as all about power. He's all for survival of the fittest in his philosophy, and therefore he sees the biblical, uh, biblical faith and ethics uh, as a power play to undermine the natural evolution of man and the victory of the strong. And when you first read this, you're so offended. And you say, what happened to this guy? <laughs> you know, was he abused as a child? <laughs> but if you are able to read between the lines, he's actually saying something very similar about morality in the public sphere that Yeshua was saying about the scribes and the Pharisees, how they used their religion and they used their status and their authority uh, to gain status. They used their religion to gain status, to gain authority. Uh, very similar to what Paul was saying in First Corinthians 13, that outward morality without love uh, is worthless. So on the overhead, for example, Nietzsche says this, subjection to morality can be slavish, vain, and self-interested, and therefore not moral at all. Now, what's he talking about? Let me illustrate this point by referring to probably my, one of my all-time favorite novels. Uh, not, no, not Lord of the Rings, <laughs> but, but Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And we're going to look at three of the five Bennett sisters. Uh, Jane, Mary, and Elizabeth, or, or Lizzie Bennett, uh, from the story, to illustrate this. Now, Jane, she's the temperamentally nice one. Uh, she's the oldest child. She's temperamentally, you know, so nice. She, she's uh, so good, so kind, never a harsh word, never a word of criticism, always eager to please, always so complying. You know exactly the kind of person I'm talking about. <laughs> One who always aims to please, always wants everything and everyone to be nice. Uh, they're nice makers. 
their instinct is to automatically agree with everybody uh, to give in, uh, to make nice, to make peace, uh, to smile. Uh, Their mentality is, this can be a win-win situation. There's no need for confrontation. Uh, There's no need for division. Everything can be just fine. Everyone can be happy. I'll help make that happen. But ironically, uh, there's often very little actual concern for others uh, in this type of naturally temperamental kindness because it's typically all about you. Part of it is a desire to be liked. But even more than that, this type of person, for them, unless everyone in their inner circle is happy, they don't feel worthwhile. So it's very hard for this type of person to confront anyone, uh, to discipline anyone, Uh, So just wanting everybody to be happy is not necessarily a virtue. And it is not the biblical understanding of the fruit of the spirit of kindness. Indeed, often the desire for everybody to feel good, to be happy, it's not about them, it's about you. Uh, And if you're this type of person, you need people around you to be happy. Why? Because ultimately it's all about you. It's not about their welfare for the people around you. It's all about you. In that sense, Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche is right. For this type of person, your kindness, your, your temperamental kind, niceness, it's often the result of an inner weakness, uh, of an inner lack of confidence, uh, of an inner emptiness. It's all about you. That's the temperamental kind of, of niceness and kindness. That's the, the Jane Bennett type of person. Then there's, the next one is there's the moralistic type of kindness. Uh, that's represented by, by Mary Bennett. Not in the film, but in the actual book, we're told that Mary's problem was that she was the plainest. She was the homeliest uh, of the five girls. Uh, And because she was plain, she desperately needed to feel that she was better than other people in something. Uh, And to meet this need, uh, she got into morality and religion and altruism uh, and charity. Uh, And therefore, she was very altruistic, uh, very charitable, uh, always doing nice things for people. But again, it was all about her. Because unlike the temperamentally nice person who desperately needs people to be happy, the moralistically nice person desperately needs other people to be grateful. Uh, and so, for example, in The Four Loves, uh, C.S. Lewis writes this on the overhead. If you do someone a kindness in order to show him or others or, or even yourself what a fine chap you are or, or to put them in your debt and then you sit down and wait for gratitude... You're going to be in for a lot of disappointment in life. <laughs> All natural affection is idolatrous and needs to be purified. What he's saying here is that all natural kindness is self-serving. So some people are very kind, but it's all about you. It's not the people you're, you're being kind to. Uh, you're looking for gratitude. Uh, you're looking for indebtedness. Uh, because if I'm nice to you, now you're going to be grateful to me. You're going to treat me with respect that I want and, 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 and respect that I deserve. Or it's about neediness. I need you to be happy or else I don't feel like I'm a worthwhile person. And then thirdly, we get to Lizzie Bennett. Now, Lizzie is not uh, an artificially kind person like, like Jane and Mary. She's actually an unkind person. That's really what the whole book is about. It's about her. Uh, She's the smart one, uh, the witty one. She understands what's really going on in people. She knows how to skewer them. She knows how to to deconstruct them. She knows how to see what they're really all about underneath. But as a result of that, she's harsh. And she tells people off. 
Uh, that's what the book's name is about. It's about pride and prejudice. And a lot of it, most of it, is hers. But in the end, she gives us more of a picture of what the Bible means or what God means by kindness. Because in the end, she's humbled into kindness. Mary and Jane, they lack inner strength, whereas Lizzie lacks humility. Lizzie has the confidence, uh, but not the humility to be kind. So she's unkind. Uh, she's brusque. She's harsh. She's indifferent. She writes people off. Jane and Mary, they have humility, but not enough inner confidence to be truly kind. And the point is this. No one is really and truly kind naturally. There are people who are humble, but they don't have the inner assurance, so they're artificially kind, and it's all about them. Others who have plenty of confidence, uh, but not enough humility, and so they're brusque and, 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 and busy, too busy for you, and they're indifferent, and they're condescending, and they're unkind. Only if there was this incredible juxtaposition uh, of deep humility and incredible inner assurance, inner strength, could you really be truly kind. A kindness that's not selective. You're not only kind to certain types of people. Uh, a kindness that's not conditional, such as uh, uh, for the, on the basis of someone else's gratitude or, or happiness, people getting better you know, because I'm helping them. On the, on the overhead. But real spiritual kindness is something that is not natural. It's really, it really has to be a mark of a supernaturally changed heart. It has to come to us. It has to be born in us. And therefore, artificially kind people uh, do seem, like Ian McKellen said, to be, to be less human than even broken people or bad people. Because at least with broken people or bad people, they often know what's going on in their heart. And they're often actually sensitive to others who also are messed up. But artificially kind people cannot really relate to others or to themselves. Their kindness is often forced and odd. They're not in touch with their own heart. They're not in touch with what's really going on in themselves. Uh, and they can't understand why other people can't pull themselves together like I have. But it's possible... To have a kindness that doesn't make you less human, but more. So on the overhead, number one, that's what kindness is not. Kindness is not all about you. That's an artificial kindness. But number two, secondly, what then is true spiritual kindness? Now I'm going to suggest today there's three aspects to it on the overhead. I'm going to call them practical grace, uh, befriending grace, uh, and visionary grace. Real kindness to other people... Real warmth, real love has these three characteristics. So as we go through these, I want you to be asking yourself, am I a kind person? If you ask the people who are closest to you, or who know you the best, if you ask them to pick three or four adjectives that best describe you, would any of those adjectives be the word kind? She's a generally kind person. Uh, he's really kind. So let's look at these three characteristics of kindness. First, kindness is, is practical grace. Uh, it, it's meeting needs. This is the most straightforward uh, aspect of kindness. We see this in, in Ephesians 4, verse 29. Don't let any wholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Our words are to build up, to edify those who hear us. When I speak, it shouldn't be all about my needs. 
uh, for what I can do uh, to meet their needs. I should be asking, what do they need? Uh, or in the case here of Ephesians 4.29, uh, what do they need to hear? Well, what kind of words out of my mouth do they need to hear? Uh, if I give them, if I give them this, that's one aspect of kindness. Kind conversation is kindness expressed through your words. Do you enter into conversations asking, what do these people really need from me? What do they need to hear? Uh, how can I say something that will benefit them? That's one aspect of kindness on the overhead. Kindness is meeting the needs of others instead of your own. It's noticing needs and then meeting them. Now, I want you to note, very important here, it doesn't say you should say whatever pleases them, but rather whatever benefits them. So here you have a distinction between unkindness, artificial kindness, and real kindness. On the overhead, unkindness tells people off. It just says whatever you want to say. Artificial kindness never tells people off, never criticizes, never says anything harsh. Why? Because if you're an artificially kind person, it's ultimately all about you. So you're warm, you're so supportive, you're so kind, you never criticize, you never never tell people off. Why? Because you're really not concerned with what benefits them. And therefore, you're not truly kind. You're artificially kind. You're using what looks like kind, generous action to get power over people or to meet your own needs or to get approval, even if it means not speaking the truth. So Ephesians 4.29 doesn't say tell people off. Uh, uh, to be harsh and brusque and unkind, or to say what only pleases them, and therefore to meet your needs, not theirs, but rather it says, give them what they need, whatever it is, even if it means they might be mad at you. So in the overhead, then you know you're kind. So kindness first is all about meeting others' needs. That's practical grace. And then number two, secondly, it's also befriending grace. Now, what do I mean by that? Kindness isn't just giving things. It's not just giving advice or money or things, but rather it's giving yourself, being a friend. Now we start to see how hard this really is. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Now, if the verse had said, be kind and compassionate to others, power would be calling for you to find objects for your kindness. But when he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, He's calling for you to find subjects for your kindness. And what that means is this one another mutual relationship. And therefore, what the Lord's saying here through Paul is that I want you to engage in mutual interdependent relationships with your kindness. So on the overhead. So without personal involvement, without a willingness for, for you to open up, without a willingness for you to enter into relationships, you're not really a kind person. A kind person is marked by befriending grace. Now, practically speaking, you can only have so many friends. You can't be close friends with everybody. You only have so much time and energy. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. In every encounter you have, even with people you've never met before, for you to extend to them uh, uh, and for them to experience through you befriending grace which is the essence of kindness. This means the same two elements of real friendship can show, actually show up in every encounter you have. Now, what are these two elements on the overhead? Vulnerable transparency and unconditional constancy. Transparency 
and constancy. What does that mean? A friend always lets you in. Transparency. And never lets you down. Constancy. And you must have both to be a true friend. Some people are very good at being there for you, but they don't let you into their life. Uh, they keep you at arm's length. They won't, let you, they won't let you down, but they won't let you see their inner true self. And then there's other people who let you in all the time. You know, the first time you meet them, they want, they want to tell you their whole life story. <laughs> but they let, they let you down, though. They're not there for you. And in either case, they're not real friends then. Friendship is an act of grace. If you're a kind person, that means you give the friend and grace in every situation, uh, in every encounter. Yeah, Even though you might not be close friends with everybody, uh, these same two elements can be there in many situations as an act of kindness. We see, for example, and we see this in John 15 with Yeshua himself. When Yeshua tells his disciples, I'm your friend. You know, and he gives them these same two elements. First he says, you're my friends, you're not my servants. Because I tell you my business. Uh, I tell you what's going on inside. I let you in. Look at verse John fifteen fifteen. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Why? For everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. I let you in. So first he lets them in. He's transparent with them. And then second, he says, I give my life for you. I don't let you down. I'm constant. Look at verse 13, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So we see the same two elements of friendship here. So let me ask you, think of people who you've encountered, who, who, who've, who've, uh, who've extended to you befriending grace. They don't just brush you off. They don't, they don't just do their duty. But they're really kind to you. Uh, what is befriending grace? It's the same two things you've got to have to be a spiritually kind person. Uh, there's a humility, and yet there's also a confidence. On the one hand, befriending grace happens when this person who I'm talking to exhibits humility uh, and therefore transparency. Uh, there's no spin. Uh, he's not trying to control what, I, what aspects I see of him. There's just an openness, a transparency, a willingness to be honest about himself. So on the one hand, there's a transparency. But on the other hand, there's also a safety. Friends don't let you down. Even on the first encounter, you can sometimes recognize in someone they have such an inner strength and confidence, they don't need for you to be anything. They don't need for you to be happy or to be grateful uh, if they help you. Uh, they don't need for you to be better. Uh, you don't sense that they have a need for you to do anything. And as soon as you get to know some people, you know, here's a person I can say anything to. It wouldn't shock them uh, or scandalize them uh, or run them off. Here's a person I can confide in. Here's a person I can be real with uh, and not offend. On the other hand, there are other people who are friendly, but it wouldn't take much for them to say, forget you. <laughs> These type of people aren't safe to be real with uh, or to confide in. Uh, because they need for you to be a certain kind of person. Uh, they need for you to say certain things, uh, and not only certain things. Uh, they need for you to be in a certain condition, or the relationship cannot go on. On the overhead. But in, in befriending grace, you've got someone so humble that there's transparency and openness. But also at the same time, someone so confident and secure and, and internally full, that they don't need you to be a certain way. 
And therefore, it's safe for you to be honest with them. It's safe for you to stop spinning. Uh, have you experienced that kind of befriending grace? And even more importantly, do you give it to others? Do you give it to everyone you meet? Do they sense that from you when they meet you, when they encounter you? So, on the overhead, first of all, kindness is, is practical grace, meaning others' needs instead of your own. It's not selfishly having it be all about you. Number two, it's befriending grace. And then on number three, it's what I'm going to call visionary grace. Because kindness is towards an end. Uh, it's got a vision for the people that you're encountering. You see, what's the motive for your kindness? You know, that's what Ian McKellen asked in his interview that we looked at. He says, you know, I look at some people kind of, kind of like Jane in Pride and Prejudice, and they're so nice, and they're so sweet, and they're so kind, and I say, what's the motive for that? <laughs> and that's the question that we're asking here today also. We've seen all the bad motives. So what, what's the right one? Why should you be kind to people? Just so you can feel like you're a great person? Like C.S. Lewis said, looking for gratitude? What's the goal? Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Don't do or say anything except what's helpful for building others up. Look at Ephesians 4.29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but instead only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those uh, who, who listen. Interesting, the word here for, for building others up to edify, it's actually the, the Greek word for, for building a house. And you never build a house without a blueprint. You've got to have something you're looking at. What are you looking at when you encounter someone? And if you're not intentional about it, you're often not going to be kind. So what's your vision for your encounter? If you, don't have, if you don't have a vision, you're not going to be consistently kind. Well, what's the vision we're given here in our passage? Right in the middle of all this talk about building others up, not tearing them down, being kind, being compassionate, being forgiving, suddenly, right in the middle, Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, what's this doing in the middle of all these exhortations about proper character? Well, first of all, Paul's saying, of course, that unkindness grieves the Holy Spirit, uh, that the presence of God is grieved when you're unkind. Okay, but he's saying more than that. Uh, uh, because then why does Paul go on to say that unkindness grieves the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's job is to seal you for the day of redemption? And that's why, by the way, unkindness hurts the Holy Spirit. So, so why does Paul say this? What does it mean? What's the day of redemption? It's the last day. The day in the future when Yeshua returns to establish his kingdom. It's the day of redemption. The day in which utter redemption happens. Redemption of your soul. Redemption of your body. Redemption of nature. Redemption of the universe. Redemption of everything spiritually and socially and culturally and physically. On the day of redemption, three things. Number one, everything broken will be repaired. Number two, every good thing lost will be recovered. And number three, everything sad will become untrue. And yet it actually be more glorious for having once been sad and broken and lost. And because the Holy Spirit 
And so he's always dealing with you with that ultimate end in view. He hates unkindness. Because unkindness means you are out of step with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit in dealing with you is looking forward to that day. Do you? Do you look to that final day? Is everything you say and do uh, uh, said and done with a view towards God's kingdom? What are you going to be like on that day? Because whether you know it or not, the life you're living right now is preparing and shaping you into the type of creature, for good or for ill, that you will be on that day for all eternity. Are you living for that day? Are you living with a view toward eternity? Paul talks about this in Romans 8.18, where he says, I consider these present sufferings, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Glory revealed in us, revealed in you and in me. For example, consider an acorn. How does that little acorn compare with a redwood tree uh, from which it comes? You know, it's incredible. You mean, that huge tree was all in, in there, in that little acorn? But it was. <laughs> it was all in there. Incredible potential uh, in that acorn. Giant redwood. How much different is the giant redwood from the acorn? The acorn, uh, Okay, think about that. Now look around you. Look at all your fellow Etzchayim members. Do you know what you're, what you're seeing? Spiritual acorns. Any man or woman who gets planted, being properly planted in the right soil, but that's what makes an acorn erupt, being planted in the right soil. Anyone who's planted in the soil of the love and the power of Yeshua the Messiah, in them there is such beauty and such potential and such power that's beyond anything right now uh, that you can imagine. It's so beyond anything right now that makes the difference between an acorn and a redwood look like nothing. And the Holy Spirit is saying, that's what I'm after in all my encounters with you. He says, I want you, I want to get you. My goal is to get you to your future glory self. Can you stay in step with him? Or are you going to grieve him? And can you conduct all your dealings with people, other people, with that end in view? Now, no one puts this better, of course, than C.S. Lewis. He writes this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal. And their life to ours is as the life of a gnat. It's a serious thing to remember that even the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption, which you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we're to some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in, and it's in light of, of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. 
All our friendships, our loves, our play, even our politics. We all lead our lives. We all have our little story. And when someone comes into our life, we wonder if we can get them to play the role that we want so that our story goes in the direction that we want it to go in. But lift up your eyes. Every human being is in a story, and the end of that story is either glory or terror. And God is watching. And the angels are watching. And every encounter you have, you, you, you get into their story, uh, the person's story that, that you're encountering. Now, are you going to come into their story filled with your own needs, saying, how can I use them uh, to make me feel better? Or are you going to say, as God and the angels watch, what can I do to help these people into God? What can I do to help these people eventually get into Yeshua himself? Every day, C.S. Lewis says, we're moving people towards more hope, more openness, more love, uh, more encouragement, or away from it in the way we treat each other. So are you willing to enter into all your relationships uh, and uh, have all your encounters uh, be with, with the awe and circumspection proper to the realization of how you are thereby helping to move them towards one end or the other. That's visionary grace. That's a key aspect of kindness. It means when I encounter someone, I realize that I'm standing with someone of infinite preciousness and infinite value. And that I, therefore, I want to come into their life in such a way, in the same way that Messiah has come into my life. Not to be served, but to serve. So on the overhead, we've seen what kindness is not, what kindness is. We have these three things, practical grace, befriending grace, visionary grace. Now finally, lastly, number three, very quickly, where are we going to get the power for that? And you thought kindness was easy. <laughs> where are we going to get the power for that? Now, well, notice where the therefore is uh, in our text. After Paul says in Ephesians 4, I want you never to say anything except which benefits people and to conduct all your dealings uh, uh, the way that the Holy Spirit does uh, for the day of redemption. No anger, no brawling, uh, no slander, no bitterness or rage. Uh, be kind and compassionate, but be forgiving to one another. Okay, how? Paul says, if you want to do all of that, look at the next verse, Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, follow God's example and walk in love, just as Messiah loved us and gave himself for us. Paul says, look at the God who was kind to you in Messiah. Look at it, Titus, verse, Titus 3, 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. Uh, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Uh, we lived in malice and envy, uh, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, here's our tour portion today of Aira, appeared. <laughs> he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. Paul says the kindness of God appeared. Now where did, did uh, kind, the kindness and the love of God appear? Because the word appear means to become visible. The text here is talking about Yeshua. God became visible in Yeshua. Yeshua, he's the ultimate kindness of God. So on the overhead, 
Practical grace, concrete grace. How do we see, where do we see that? Look at the incarnation. He became visible. He became concrete. Befriending grace. Always lets you in, never lets you down. Look at Yeshua on the cross. Look at his vulnerability. His arms are open to you. They were nailed open for you. He never lets you down. Visionary grace. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he saw that he was going to have to, what he was going to have to go through was hell to save you. Literal hell. And he did it. He told the Father, not my will, but yours be done. He had a vision for your future glory. Real kindness, it takes both a radical humility and a radical confidence. And we see that in Yeshua. So finally, how are, are, are we going to get that? You know, in Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie Bennett, she was humbled into kindness. Not artificial kindness based on your needs, but, but real kindness. And here's what will both humble and affirm you into this kindness. It's the it's seeing the kindness of Yeshua. Nailed open. Constant. The kindness of Yeshua on the overhead. Uh, the kindness of Yeshua on the cross. Uh, it humbles you because it shows you you were so bad that Yeshua had to die for you. So it humbles you. But at the same time, it affirms you. Because it shows you that you are so valuable that he wanted to die for you. And so you also affirmed. And when you put these two together, then and only then will you be able to live a life of love. And that's the key to kindness. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Lord, today we asked you for a supernaturally changed heart. A heart that's full of your love and kindness and compassion. A heart that desires to, to serve and, and not to be served. Lord, we don't want to be deceived with just some morally restrained heart that does outwardly good things and, and moral things and religious things, but that inwardly is full of corruption and pride and prejudice uh, and lust and anger and jealousy and uncleanliness and dead men's bones. Lord, help us today to examine ourselves, to compare our lives against your fruit of the Spirit. And today, especially to focus our hearts on this fruit of kindness, true, spiritual, altruistic, uh, biblical kindness, not artificial kindness, which is ultimately just all about, just all about me. Lord, help me to be kind in, in meeting the practical needs of others, putting them first, kind deeds, kind words, with the goal to benefit them and to meet their needs, speaking the truth in love. And help me even more importantly to give myself befriending grace, to be a true friend, one who always lets you in, never lets you down, one who's open and honest with others, so with no spin, uh, is there for others, somebody, somebody other people can trust uh, and confide in uh, and depend on. And finally, Lord, help me have a divine vision for all my relationships, where I see, where I see what a dazzling new creation the Holy Spirit wants to make them into, and that I do everything possible to encourage them uh, in that direction. Help me to treat each person, Lord, from this eternal perspective. Looking forward, Lord, to your return, Yeshua. Looking forward to the day of redemption. For I pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.